a Bible this morning, please uh, find Genesis chapter 3. Genesis uh, chapter 3, and if you, if you didn't bring a Bible, I want to encourage you to do so in the future uh, so you can actively follow along with us, make notes, uh, so you can review them later. It could be a digital copy of the Bible. It could be a hard copy of the Bible, whatever works for you, but I want to encourage you to bring one. If you're new to City Church, we are in a series of sermons during these last few weeks of Lent. And this, it's on the subject of sin. We've called this series Twisted, and it's going to take us all the way up to Easter. We, we've called it Twisted because the Bible teaches that sin has twisted God's original design for the world in which we live. It has wrenched it. It has mangled it. It has distorted every aspect of God's creation. And if it weren't for Genesis chapter 3, we would be at a loss to explain what's wrong with the world. Uh, this past week, I, I followed a fascinating dialogue uh, on Twitter between a uh, just a brilliant Christian woman by the name of Nancy Piercy and another woman whose Twitter handle is Janet Deconverted. Uh, she's, she's an atheist. Uh, she once had uh, apparently some exposure to some twisted version of Christianity growing up, and she seems now to be very angry because of it. I don't have time to go through the whole dialogue, so I'm just going to condense it down into its most salient points. But the starting point for the dialogue was Janet's anger and what the Bible teaches about sin. She asked Nancy Piercy, do you agree that it is healthy for children to believe that they have a massive problem inside of them, that they are sick with sin and terminally poisonous? Apparently, she'd read a Christian blogger somewhere who had said that that's what she teaches her children. Uh, she goes on to, to add that to tell a child that because he's a sinner, he needs a savior, and if he doesn't believe it, he'll burn in hell for all of eternity. She says that's an abusive message. And I think that most of us could agree that to teach a young child about sin in that manner would be uh, inappropriate. But Nancy Piercy doesn't choose to engage this woman on how to teach a child about sin. Instead, she tries to get this woman to think out the implications of her atheism. And so she first replies by quoting the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who said, if there's no God, we are the result of an accidental, accidental collocations of atoms. In other words, uh, being ju juxtaposed against one another. It's just an accident. How we've, been, how we've come to be. Everything we care about ends in the grave. We must build our lives on unyielding despair. She goes on, and she quotes the famous, famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, who said something similarly. He said, there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference in this world. And then she asks Janet, is this what you teach your children? that their lives have no purpose, that their lives are ruled by pitiless indifference, that is an abusive message. And then she addresses why it's so important to understand what the Bible says about sin. She says, every worldview has to explain why evil and oppression exist in the world. Darwinism says we're just not evolved enough. Buddhism says that we just mistakenly think that the material world is real. But she says, Christianity says that all humans are created by God and have intrinsic value. But because humans are free moral agents, we often choose evil. And she says, the Bible's teaching on the fall, in other words, uh, how sin entered the world, the Bible's teaching on the fall does not negate its teaching on creation. It gives a balanced perspective as to why humans are wonderful, yet also prone to evil and oppression. And then she concludes by asking Janet Deconverted, What's your answer? You see, to make sense of the world, everyone has to be able 
to explain why, on the one hand, we insist that we be treated with dignity, and yet, on the other hand, why we often treat, treat other people as if they have no dignity. Why are we capable of such good and yet also so much evil? Why do we long for relationships and yet divide ourselves with walls, both physical walls and metaphorical walls? Genesis chapter 3 explains all of that. So let's read again from verse 1 of chapter 3. And this is the account of how sin first entered the world. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We read this last week. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that's where we left off last week. We just started this series last week. That's where we left off. We said that what we learned there was that sin is the result of twisted ideas about the character of God. Satan planted doubts in Eve's mind about the character of God and about his motives, telling them not to eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in actuality, God wanted to bless them, not hurt them, He was saying, obey me, and you can live in paradise forever. Don't obey me, and death and destruction and chaos will become your reality. You may remember, I said last week, to think of it in these terms, it was like God was saying, don't eat from that tree, and you can live on any of the Caribbean islands that you want forever. Eat, though, and you'll have to live in Detroit. Now, by the way, you, you, you won't believe this, but of all the Sundays to be at City Church, a guy was visiting here last Sunday from Detroit. Unfortunately, he had a good attitude about it. My point, though, was that God was actually trying to bless Adam and Eve to do good for them. But Satan twists God's words and God's motives. He casts doubt on the character of God, which then leads to what happens in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And this is the moment that everything changed in the world. This is the moment that theologians refer to as the the fall of man. And as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, this is the moment when every aspect of God's creation was twisted. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, that's it? Seriously? You're telling me that all of the sickness and suffering and death and division and oppression of people and every natural disaster and every violent act in the history of humanity and every act of greed, it's all because of this, a woman eating fruit? It does seem kind of trivial on the surface, doesn't it? Like, how could could eating fruit create such evil? What, What was so significant about it that it has wrought such severe consequences in the world. Well, here's the answer. I'm going to give it to you in principle form, and then I'll come back and we'll look at it in more depth. But here's the answer. Here's what's so significant about this moment. Eating the fruit was a power grab. On the one hand, a rebellion against God's created order, and on the other hand, a prideful declaration of autonomy from God. That's what was so significant about this moment. It was a power grab. 
They rejected every aspect of God's created order, and they said, we want to be autonomous. We want to be our own God. That's what it was. That's what was so significant about this moment. Now, some of you may still be thinking, well, Jeff, listen, come on, you're, still, you're making too big of a deal out of this. Seriously, dude, all they did was eat some fruit. Well, okay, think, I want you to think of it like this. I want you to imagine a mother and her young son in a standoff. Like, you know, like he's, like he's two, three, four years old, right? They're in a standoff. Mom is at one end of a freshly painted hallway. Young son is standing at the other end of the hallway with a red crayon in his hand. And mom knows what he's thinking in that magical, mystical way that moms know stuff before anyone else knows it, even you. And she says to the boy, don't do it. Don't you dare do it, mister. And he just stares at her. In the corner of his mouth, she sees it, a slight curl of the lip, and without even blinking, he presses the crayon to the freshly painted wall, and he proceeds to walk the length of the hallway toward his mom, dragging the crayon along the wall the whole way with a little smile on his face. Now, you might say, that sounds like a very specific story, Jeff. Yes, it is, because it happened in my house. Only my wife had just been called by a realtor Our house was on the market. The realtor had just called and said, I'm bringing some people over in 30 minutes. Can you get yourself and the three boys out of the house so that I can let them visit? And he does this in that moment when they're coming. I'm telling you something. I got a phone call. She was in the car. She was alone home with the kids. She got in the car. She called me at the office. And I could, the, the, the tone of her voice was chilling. And she told me what happened. And I, and I asked, is he still alive? And I want to just encourage you. <laughs> He's alive. He's 24 years old now. He lives in New Jersey. He, he survived, but it was frightening. This very thing happened. Now, let me just tell you that you might say, so what? Big deal. Just a crayon mark on a wall at an inconvenient time. Not that big of a deal. But is that really all it was? Is that really all this is? I mean, you ask any mother, and she will tell you that there was more to that. That it, was, it wasn't just a crayon. It was an act of rebellion designed to overturn the hierarchy in their relationship. It was a three-year-old version of a power grab. And the crayon was just the instrument that he had in his hand. And so was the fruit, you see. It wasn't just about eating fruit. It was the motive behind it. It was a power grab. Now, let me just explain why it was a power grab. Let me explain the two ways that it was a power grab that I stated just a moment ago. First, I said that it was a power grab in that it was a rebellion against God's created order. And what do I mean by that? Well, this is really fascinating. Back in chapters 1 and 2, God establishes, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he he establishes a created, uh, an order, an authority structure, a hierarchy, if you will. And of course, at the top of the hierarchy is God himself. Well, he's the creator of the universe. He's the ultimate authority. But then second, he creates Adam. And I want you to notice about that command not to eat from that fruit, I want you to notice to whom it's directed. It says, the Lord God commanded who? Who? The man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. It was Adam's responsibility. God had given Adam the responsibility to ensure that he and Eve obeyed God's command. Okay, so after, after he creates Adam, he creates Eve. And then he says to Adam and Eve, 
rule over, in other words, have authority over. I want you to have authority. I want you to execute authority. He delegates his authority. He says, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So at the bottom of the hierarchy, so at the top of the hierarchy, you've got God, you've got Adam, you've got Eve, and then at the bottom of the hierarchy are the animals and the birds and the serpents and the fish. Now, I want you to watch this. That's the hierarchy that God has created. That's his created order. Now watch this. In this one act of rebellion, every aspect of God's created order, his authority structure, is rejected. First, notice this. Who does the serpent go to? Eve. Servant approaches Eve, not Adam. Right off the bat, Satan is undermining God's created order by going to Eve, not Adam, who had been given the command and the responsibility to make sure that they did not eat from the tree. First, he goes to Eve. Second, Adam neglects his God-given responsibility. What's he doing in this whole scenario? Nothing. He's just standing around. He lets Eve do all the talking. And as we're going to see next week, when God confronts Adam with his sin, Adam tries to blame it on Eve. He says, well, it's all her fault. Well, the good news is that God doesn't let him off the hook. In the New Testament, Adam, uh, not Eve, is always blamed for this moment. Let me give you an example of that. The Apostle Paul is writing about this in the book of Romans, and he says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam, not Eve, to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, not Eve. So God God didn't let Adam off the hook for neglecting his responsibility. All right, third, Eve assumes Adam's responsibility. She makes the decision to eat, not Adam. Fourth, neither Adam nor Eve exercised their authority over the serpent. God had told them to rule over every living creature. uh, creature. They should have rebuked the the serpent, but they don't. Fifth, Eve listens to the creature's lies rather than her creator's command. Sixth, Adam trusted Eve, not God. Every aspect, you see, of God's created order is undermined, rejected, rebelled against in this one act. We can say it this way. In this act of rebellion, God's created order was twisted. At every point, it was twisted at every point. And the fallout from that one act of rebellion continues today. Every single person who's ever been born into this world has had this rebellious nature passed down to them. The refusal to acknowledge and to live under God's created order. Okay, this is why rulers sometimes become tyrants, why leaders sometimes abuse and manipulate their followers, why some teachers and coaches use their position and their authority to tear kids down rather than to build them up. You know why? Because in each case, it's the refusal of those in power to exercise their power under the authority of God in the way that God wanted his delegated authority to be used as a way to bless people rather than to take advantage of and to oppress them. It's a rejection of God's created order. This inherited rebellious spirit that you and I have, it's also why children rebel against their parents' authority. It's why employees rebel against their employer's authority. It's why students rebel against their teacher's authority. It's also why you reflexively flinch if someone says to you, you need to submit to authority. How do you like hearing that? How do you like the word submit? 
None of us like to be told that. None of us like that. You have inherited the twisted ideas about God's goodness that Satan used to convince Eve and Adam to eat. You don't see his authority structure as good. You don't see authority as something that promotes peace and human freedom. No, 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 no. Your your twisted mind turns authority into a means of oppression that you have to get out from underneath at all costs. Because the only way to to freedom in your mind is to be free from all authority. And so you must reassert your individuality. It is a power grab. You see, every act of rebellion against human authority derives itself from this act of rebellion against God's created order in the Garden of Eden. It's a power grab. An act of rebellion against God's created order. That's what it is. Now, I also said that it's also a power grab in that it was a prideful declaration of autonomy from God. Satan told Eve uh, in verse 5, he said, uh, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what did he mean when he said that they would be like God? Well, understand this, that God has no authority above him who determines right from wrong. Uh, He's morally autonomous. What was so enticing to Eve here was the idea that she should have the right to determine what was right and wrong for herself without anyone else having to decide that for her, without anybody else telling her. She wanted to make those decisions. And notice again, knowing that, hearing that, understanding that, notice again what the text says. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Do you hear it? Can you hear that? Eve has removed God from his position as her moral authority, and she's calling the shots now. She's making the call. She determined that the fruit of that tree would be good for food. She determined that if it's beautiful, it must be right. It must be okay to eat. She determined that it will be intellectually beneficial to her. And so what does she do? Look at the verb. She saw, took, ate, and gave. It's a power grab. She put herself in the place of God. And you see, this is, that's the very nature of sin. As we talk about this during during this, uh, during this series, understand that this is the very nature of sin. It is to remove God as the authority over our lives and to declare ourselves our own God. And what's happened is that since this moment in the Garden of Eden, our perception of ourselves has been twisted. All of us. We all have a twisted perception of ourselves. We see ourselves not through the lenses of reality, but we see ourselves through distorted lenses as morally autonomous beings, even though we were never created to be morally autonomous beings. Now, um, let me just give you some examples of this. I think it's it's easiest to see how we do this culturally, right? 
how we want to be morally autonomous, culturally. So for instance, we don't want to be told that there's some truth that we have to live under. Like, we want to define truth for ourselves. Let me suggest to you, walk, if you don't believe that, walk onto the campus of USI and, and shout real loud, the Bible is God's truth. It is absolute truth. Shout that real loud and see how long it takes before you are escorted off of that campus. We don't want to be told that. There is no absolute truth. I define what truth is. Truth is relative to me and my definition of what is right and wrong. Here's another example. A few years ago, the Supreme Court took it upon themselves to redefine what constitutes marriage, a landmark act of hubris given the fact that God created the institution of marriage and as such defined it in the book of Genesis. Who was the Supreme Court to redefine what God had defined? Here's another example. Anyone ever heard this one? Nobody can tell me what I can or can't do with my body. My body is my body, which then makes abortion and euthanasia. Sex with whom, with whomever and whenever I want, the ability to find my own gender, makes all of those things possible, see, because it's a prideful declaration of autonomy from God. That's how we see it culturally. But let me just bring it down now from cultural examples to a much more personal level for a moment. I want to show you just a few ways that this desire to play God, this desire to set yourself up as God, plays itself out, reveals itself in your life. First, let me talk about forgiveness for a moment. Anyone here struggle with forgiveness? No. If you won't forgive someone who's hurt you in some way, it's because you're setting yourself up as God. You're certain that you know what they deserve, and you have the right to see them get it. Putting yourself in the position of God. Anyone here struggle with anxiety? Anxiety. Why do you get anxious? Well, let me, let me, let me just speak for myself. I get anxious because I am very certain about how my life should go how human history should go, and how the lives of the people I love should go. I'm afraid that God, who's actually in charge of all of that, I'm afraid he doesn't get it. I'm afraid he doesn't understand my plan. And so he's asleep at the wheel. And so I sit and I worry and I stew about what if things don't go the way that I'm certain they should go? What if God doesn't get the message? What if he doesn't understand what I understand? What am I doing? What am I doing? putting myself in the place of God. I've decided that I know what is best. The result of which, of course, is anxiety. If I can't trust God, I'm left to myself. That creates anxiety. Somehow in the insanity of my twisted perception of myself, I think that my worrying and stewing and hand-wringing will actually affect reality. And that's, I use the word insanity because that's really what it is. Like we all have this insanity inside of us. We think that we're God. Anybody who's been involved with Alcoholics Anonymous knows a little bit about the insanity that comes from thinking that you are God. In fact, this is why the first three steps in AA are really just an acknowledgement that there is a God and he is not me. Step one of the 12 steps, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe 
that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to what? Sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And you see, AA realizes that the first step back from insanity is always recognizing that there is a God and he is not me. Forgiveness, anxiety. There's something else I want to, that I want to show you about how this desire to set yourself up as God affects some of you in the room. It makes the gospel offensive to us. The Apostle Paul often referred to the gospel, more specifically the cross, as offensive. Why is it offensive? Well, it's offensive because it says that no matter how you may define morality, no matter how religious you are or how moral that you think you are, it's not enough. It's not moral enough. The gospel says that you are not good enough, that you are infinitely more sinful than you think you are, so much so that someone had to die in order for your sins to be forgiven. That's why the cross is so offensive. No one wants to be told that they're not good enough. No one likes to acknowledge that they're sinners. That's why we're so defensive, you know, when we get criticized. You want to think of yourself as good, despite what God says about you. You're rejecting his authority, you see. And you're setting yourself up as God. And you're saying, I don't need someone to have died for me. That's primitive. That's regressive. I don't need all this talk about blood. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good enough. That's why the gospel is offensive. Because you want to redefine redefine for yourself what the standard of good is. Forgiveness, uh, anxiety, cross being offensive to you. Those are just a few examples of how this prideful declaration of autonomy plays itself out in your life. But in truth, everything, that is wrong with you and everything that is wrong with the world today is a result of Adam and Eve's power grab. We want out from underneath all authority and we want to make ourselves gods. It's insanity masking itself as freedom. Now the question is, what do you, okay, so what do I do with all of that, Jeff? And then let me just su- suggest two implications of this for your life today. There's more, but I just want to concentrate on two. First, for those of you who are here today who are offended by the cross, uh, you've got to make peace with the reality that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. You've got to make peace with that. You know, the fascinating thing about the Bible is the consistency and the singularity of its message. So here we are in Genesis chapter 3, and we're reading about this man named Adam. Thousands of years after Adam, the Bible refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Why? Well, had Adam obeyed God in the Garden of Eden, the world wouldn't look like it looks today. Sin would have never entered the world, nor any of its attendant death and destruction and chaos. But Adam didn't obey God. Well, rather than let the world destroy itself. In his grace and mercy, God came in the person of Jesus to rescue people and ultimately to rescue the world. 
The second Adam, Jesus, did what the first Adam didn't do. He lived a sinless life. He obeyed God at every point, even to the point of the cross, where he took on all of the sin of the world, your sin and mine, and all the death and all the destruction and all the chaos and all the suffering that came with it. He took it all on to himself. C.S. Lewis, uh, commenting on this, says that the world is a dance in which good descending from God is disturbed by evil arising from the creatures, and the resulting conflict is resolved by God's own assumption of the suffering nature which evil produces. And of course, he does that in the person of Jesus. God told Adam and Eve that they would die, but God himself in the person of Jesus tasted death, tasted suffering, tasted destruction. God told Adam to obey him, and he would live. God told, God the Father told Jesus, obey me and you will die. And Jesus did die so that we could live. And here's what I want to say to those of you who are offended by the gospel, you've got to understand something. If there was any other way that you could have been forgiven, Jesus would not have died on a cross. He would have been an idiot to have done so. Because if there were any other way, if you could be moral enough, if Buddha could save you, if Muhammad could save you, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. He would have been an idiot if he would have died. He should have come and pointed you to Buddha, to Muhammad, to talk to you about how to be moral enough. But he doesn't do that because there's no other way. If you're offended by the gospel, your first step back into reality is to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of the forgiveness that only Christ can offer through his death on the cross. That's the first step back into reality. If you're offended by the gospel. There are others of though others of you though who have believed in the cross, in Christ and what he did on the cross. But you need to understand something. You can't really live under the authority of God if you have no idea what his Bible says. And look, what bothers me the most is that I know that there are people here. I know in our culture, it's not very popular to own a Bible, to read a Bible, to care about anything that the Bible says. But it is the foundation for our faith. It is the foundation of truth. And if the Bible plays no role in your life, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't read a Bible, if you don't bring it to church and follow along with us, and well, you can't really live under his authority. You've got to set apart time to read it, to learn it, to let it affect you, to let it become part of you. Maybe you need to join a city life group here. It's one of the ways we do this at City Church is you can get with other people who are also studying the Bible and, and they're talking about the implications that it has for their lives. Join one of those groups. The Bible, you see, restores our sanity because it reminds us that there is a God and he is not me. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you from my own life what happens. The further I get away from the moments that I'm reading the Bible, not just to preach to you, but to read it for myself, I got to tell you something, the further I get from that, 
the more the insanity of my life increases. The more anxiety that I feel, the more hopelessness that I feel, the more I find myself trying to set myself up as God, the insanity just increases. And so the more consistent that you can be about reading the Bible for yourself, taking it in for yourself, letting it restore sanity to you, the more you'll experience that sanity in your life. Hard to come under the authority of the Bible. If you really don't have one, read it, study it, know what's in it. Now, look, I'm going to tell you something. You know, there are hard, you can go buy a hard copy of the Bible. You, you can bring a digital copy of the Bible, whatever. Just have one and read it. Get into it. I got to tell you something. When I first became a Christian, this was back in uh, 1985, uh, I, first, I became a Christian, and, but I didn't, I didn't care about the Bible. Like, I thought the Bible, it was a waste of money. Like, it was a, like the Bible may have cost 50 bucks or so back then. And I was like, that's that. I didn't have a lot of money back then. And it's like, that's a wasted 50 bucks right there. I could use that 50 bucks for so many better things. And somebody, somebody cared about me, and they were, like, concerned that I didn't have one. And so they just gave me a Bible. When I first started reading it, like somebody told me, they, they said, well, you know, start in the New Testament, read, read the Gospel of Matthew, and then just keep reading. So I read Matthew, and then I read Mark, and then I read Luke, and I was like, man, I think I've heard this story a couple times before. Then I read John, and I was like, I feel certain I've heard this before. I didn't even understand that the Gospels were four different accounts, or four accounts by different men of Jesus' life and Jesus' death on the cross. I was a complete stranger to the Scriptures. And maybe that's how you feel today. It's okay. We all start off that way. Start reading it. Let it begin to restore sanity to your life. And you'll find, like, you can read the Bible for the rest of your life, and you'll never completely exhaust everything that it has to say. There are going to be parts of the Bible that you don't understand, I promise you. I suggest that if you, if you buy a Bible and you start to read the Bible, skip the book of Leviticus. Not a great book to read. Not your first time through. But own one, read one. Let it get into your life. And you'll find that it restores you to sanity because it keeps reminding you that there is a God and He is not you. I want to wrap up with this. Remind, or just remember that sin is a power grab on our part. It's us trying to put ourselves in the seat of God. And the redemption from sin is God putting Himself in the place of man. The late John Stott, the great pastor and author, once wrote this, and this is the last thing I say today. He said, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? We, un- we underestimate the amount of our sin, but we also underestimate the importance of sin, the rebelliousness of it, the degree of an offense that it is to you, our Lord. I pray, Lord, that today that you would take this and that you would drive it home into our lives and into our hearts and into our minds. And I pray, Lord, that for those that are here today who have been offended by the gospel, I pray, Lord, that maybe today that they would begin to understand that they too are a sinner. 
And that what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden has been passed down to them. Every single one of them. We're all sinners. But we're incredibly grateful, our Lord, that you substituted yourself for us. We substitute ourselves for you, but you substituted yourself for us. And in that, we can be saved. I pray that there would be people here this morning that come today to the place that they recognize that they are a sinner, that they are a sinner and that they need the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not being moral, the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can offer. And then, Lord, I pray, too, that for those who, who know Christ, come to believe in Christ, Lord, give us a hunger for the Scriptures. We won't all go to seminary and become students of it in that sense, but Lord, we can all put ourselves under your authority and learning what you have said about reality. Lord, give us a hunger for that. We're reminded of what the psalmist says, that all all the truth of God is it's as sweet as honey because it's a reflection of your goodness. And Lord, again, pray that we would begin to taste of that sweetness. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you have done on our behalf. And it's in your name that we pray today. Amen.